Welcome to Learn Buddhism. I'm Alan Pito. In the first of a few episodes where I'm going to talk about the different branches, schools, and traditions of Buddhism, I'd like to start off with Theravada Buddhism. So Theravada comprises about 38% of all Buddhists, and we find it geographically represented in the Southeast Asian countries of Myanmar, also called Burma, Laos, Cambodia, Thailand, and Sri Lanka. You can even find it intermingled inside Vietnam. So Theravada is sometimes referred to as the school of the elders, and there's a reason for that. And so we really have to kind of, before we go more into our Theravada of today, go back in time to really understand where Theravada Buddhism came from. So when the Buddha was alive, we can kind of refer to that period as original Buddhism, meaning that the Buddha was alive, he was teaching, and th that really marks a difference there. When he entered Parinirvana, final Nirvana, no longer in this world, this is where we might start to refer to it as early Buddhism. And that went on for centuries. We're looking at a tradition where the Buddhist sermons, the rules for monastics were orally recited, and of course they were remembered. So we didn't have the written word. We didn't have minutes of meetings, for example. So there's a lot about Buddhist history that we really don't understand. There's bits and pieces missing and big chunks missing as well. So some things may be more understood than other things, even to this day, there's new interpretations and there's new understanding of Buddhist history. So that's really important when it comes to Theravada. So when we're looking at early Buddhism, and it's just stretching throughout all the centuries, nobody's really looking at themselves as different schools or traditions or branches of Buddhism. They're just looking at themselves as one big monastic order, so to speak. So they're not looking at themselves as separate as in a conflict or a schism. They're looking at themselves as, hey, we're, we're all the followers of the Buddha. We are all monastics. Big Sangha, right? And what they're really looking at here is going to be the rules for monastics. So you have three different parts nowadays of a Buddhist canon. And so there's one part that's dealing with the rules, guidelines, structure for monastics. And there's hundreds of different rules for monastics and for female monastics, there's even more. So you have a lot of different rules there. As a layperson, you might be used to the five precepts. So for monastics, extensively more than that. There, there's a lot more that they have to do as monastics. So all these different practitioners, these monastics of the Buddha, as we're inside early Buddhism, are all generally following this rules that was set forth. And over time, there was this discussions, there were disagreements, like, sh what does this mean? Should we add this? Should we remove that? So there was a, a bit of discussion, and, and I don't want to say conflict, but people were going, okay, do we need to change this now? Or is this right? Or how do you interpret this? But everyone was still kind of under this one big umbrella, right? So there was these different councils. And when we start to see the emergence of what we may now call Theravada happen in the second council. And so this is where, and there's much disagreement uh, about this, although historians right now and and doing an analysis here, they're, they're kind of going to think about it in the way I'm going to describe, where basically you had this big majority of monastics, 
all these different little schools all over the place, all these different little traditions, right? And they were the majority. And then you had this minority, so to speak, going, we want to add in these additional rules for monastics. So in that that rules category. And so the majority is like, we don't agree with adding these. And this is where we kind of see that first schism going on right there, where we see the emergence of what would later become Theravada in our modern world. So the other one, the big branch, the other one that was saying we don't agree with that was would would eventually emerge into what we call Mahayana today. So it was really kind of for many years thought the opposite, where it was thought that Ma, what would eventually emerge as Mahayana was saying, no, no, we, we want to kind of relax the rules. But now it's kind of looking flipped on the side here where you saw kind of the uh, the smaller group was saying, we want to add more restrictions inside the rules for monastics or, or additional guidelines or rules, whatever it might be, that the majority didn't agree with. So what we're kind of seeing with what the rules for monastics, the guidelines, if you will, it's more closely aligned to what we see in early Buddhism, what we might see in Mahayana right now, whereas it compared to Theravada, which ad- added in some other ones. Now, that's important because still, no one's really seen themselves as being different as far as monastics. This is mostly a modern view or interpretation of it. We're seeing kind of, oh, there's a schism, right? And, and everything else. But those who would eventually become Mahayana, if you will, in, in our current world, never saw themselves as any different. So we didn't really see this separation or this view of separation we saw today. We all, they all saw themselves as monastics, following the Buddha's rules. Maybe this smaller group is like, hey, we'll make it a little more strict. Okay, we, we don't agree with that, but all saw that they were still part of this one tradition, if you will. So as time progresses on, we're starting to see pilgrimages. We're starting to see uh, the, the teaching spreading, right? So King Ashoka, he was, uh, or Emperor Ashoka, he was eventually part of where we're seeing modern-day India, right? So he was the one who really helped spread Buddhism uh, to neighboring countries. And so this was a a really remarkable point in time as it comes to Theravada, because what's said to be uh, monastic was actually a son of King Ashoka, actually went to Sri Lanka to spread the teachings down there and bring that tradition, if you will, that was in India, to be established in Sri Lanka. And that's important as we kind of go further on in our timeline to really understand Theravada. Because India proper, in the mainland, was having troubles as we progress further and further and further on in time, where we're seeing that we're having economic issues, we're having conflicts, wars, invasions, we're seeing changes in religious appetites, that Buddhism was taking a much harder hit than it was in Sri Lanka, which was separated from the mainland India. And so that allowed it to be a little bit separated. You have royal patronage in Sri Lanka there protecting, seeing that we have to protect this tradition, this Buddhism tradition we have here. So in India, by the time we're getting monastics who are kind of doing pilgrimages into uh, India, they are, for example, from China, they're seeing a a world of Buddhism that's in 
almost ruins now. So there's, in some cases, literally in ruins, there's scene where it's no longer flourishing like it was or it's in starting to decline. So you're still having schools and stuff there, but we're not seeing it as vibrant as it was when it was fully supported. And by royal patronage and by laypersons, we're starting to see that slowly go away or very quickly go away. So it's it's very striking. But in Sri Lanka, they're a little secluded, so they're, they're able to continue on. This is also where we find something very interesting inside what we may now call Theravada inside Sri Lanka. So during ancient India, all these different Buddhist schools, not all of them, but a large majority of them were actually having these Mahayana sutras and scriptures, right? And so this was really foundational for what we now see in our modern world with Mahayana Buddhism in East Asia and Central Asian Buddhism. But what we see inside Sri Lanka, you had different little sub-Theravada traditions inside there. And one of them was actually looking at Mahayana sutras because Mahayana sutras were wildly popular throughout ancient India, and was also spreading into other countries as well. So what we saw was really not surprising that you saw inside Sri Lanka, this was also being looked at, but most importantly, by one of the Theravada little traditions inside there. So with the royal patronage, the king there was like, this is going to happen because he had monastics from, let's say, the, the larger version of Theravada inside Sri Lanka saying, we don't agree with this. So he basically said, we're not going to have that. So that basically died out. But I think it's a really interesting little subnote to the history of what we now see with modern Theravada that we have in our world right now, is that that ancient, uh, as we go back in time, that ancient version of what became Theravada, that yeah, they were even looking at Mahayana scriptures. And I think that's, again, no different than we might expect. It was very popular in the day. And we saw how it became the, a very large branch of Buddhism that we have today. So it wouldn't be surprising that you might see that happening because that was happening in the mainland. So inside India, ancient India, you had all this intercommunication, discussion, debate, exchange of ideas, exchange of sutras and everything else inside all these different schools there. So it wasn't really that surprising, at least to me, that you would have find it inside Sri Lanka as well. But in our modern version of Theravada, the modern school that exists today, there is no Mahayana sutras or scriptures that are recognized. So they do not see it as what's called the word of the Buddha. So only the Pali Canon is the word of the Buddha. None of the Mahayana sutras that we see in East Asian or Central Asian Buddhism are accepted inside Theravada. But during this entire period of ancient India, we're seeing that these schools of Buddhism, if you will, want to call them that, we're seeing that they're starting to write down the teachings. So remember, this has been an oral tradition, right? And so you, you would remember these as a monastic, you would be reciting these, but now they're starting to write these down. More prominently, they've been writing them down, the, the entire scriptural canon complete, was in Sri Lanka, and this is the, the most complete canon that we have today due to their secluded status down here in Sri Lanka because in ancient India, people were writing down the scriptures, the rules, and all this stuff, right? But the problem was, eventually, they were all gone. So all of Buddhism in India, gone later on in time. But 
due to those pilgrimages of monastics and the spread of the teachings, this is where we saw in what we may call Mahayana today, which is actually based in Central Asian Buddhism and East Asian Buddhism, we're seeing that a lot of these scriptures went there, but they weren't complete canons. So usually when you hear, especially in Theravada, this is the only scriptural canon, early scriptural canon in Buddhism, we're referring to the only complete early scriptural canon of Buddhism that exists today. That doesn't mean it was the only one. All these schools of Buddhism that existed up to over 30 of them at a time, they all had their own scriptural canons. And they're all very similar in many, many ways. So what you see as we look at, for example, in the in the current day Chinese canon uh, for East Asian Buddhism, we're seeing the sermons of the Buddha are pretty much exactly the same as inside Theravada in what's called the Pali Canon. And the reason is because, guess what? They were all in the same region. They were all the same area. It wasn't that the Chinese Canon was looking at the Theravada's Pali Canon. It was just, this is how all the different schools and monastics, they're, they're all coming from the same home, if you will. They were just inside different rooms, different geographic rooms inside this big house. So as we're looking at that, that's, that's important to note, that when we look at the what's called the Pali Canon inside Theravada, that was written down complete and first to, to the best of our knowledge, as what we still have today, which is remarkable. Now, the ones that you see elsewhere inside East Asian Buddhism and sometimes inside Central Asian Buddhism are bits and pieces or intermingling of different scriptural canons. So you may have all these come together to become part of a scriptural canon for a particular tradition or, or region, for example, East Asian Buddhism. So this actually gave a lot of credence to the Pali Canon Theravada. So Theravada, of course, can say, hey, we, we got the only scriptural canon of Buddhism, the early one, this Mahayana one you see like in China and Tibet and all that, that's, we don't believe in that, this is the only real one. It was actually from scholars and Historic historians looking at the Chinese canon and comparing against the Pali canon, that they were able to establish the authenticity of the Pali canon. And we're not talking about in the religious context. We're just talking about in the historical, ancient context, right? So anyone can claim anything. So the way we are saying, hey, this Pali canon is true to, to at least early Buddhism, ancient Buddhism inside ancient India, was because we could compare it against the Chinese canon. These are two geographically separated entities, right? They weren't talking to each other, but the sermons of the Buddha were almost doctrinally the same, factoring in, of course, language translations and stuff like that. That was really key. And so that's why we love the Pali canon, because we're getting from over 30 different schools of early Buddhism, we only have a complete canon of one that still exists in the Pali canon. But again, it doesn't mean that all these other ones went away. They just, some pieces were gone and we just don't have them, but they found their life in these other traditions in Mahayana. So when we're looking at Theravada, we're looking at a continuation of one of the early Buddhist schools inside ancient India. So after that schism, that, that second council, we're seeing that there was a, there was an early Buddhist school there, which merged into another one, which merged into what you're seeing here today. So Theravada of today 
is not the same Theravada of early Buddhist school. They are using the scriptural canon of that early Buddhist school, but it's not the same one. It's just a surviving tradition of that early Buddhist school. So even inside the Pali canon, things like the Abhidhamma, which is going to be the analysis of the the Buddhist teachings, etc., that was continuing to be added to after even Mahayana scriptures. So when we look at scriptural canons, and this is important to, to note as well, they were all considered living canons. Now, Theravada, they closed their canon. You know, so that's that's actually not going to be added to. This is what you're seeing. It's done. Whereas traditionally throughout Buddhism, it was sort of like a living thing. And I think the rules of the monastics uh, part of that canon is a good example. So that's where you kind of see it kept going and going and going. And you, you can still see that to some degree when it comes to what we now call the Mahayana branch of Buddhism. So neither right nor wrong, it's like they are firm on where their scriptural canon is, and that's what we have with the Pali canon. So what is this major difference? Like, what is Theravada all about? So I mentioned earlier they go sort of like Theravada meaning school of the elders, right? So they're looking at basically the path of the hearers or our hardship. And so what they're trying to do is do what you saw with original Buddhism. And so in original Buddhism, we're seeing that the followers of the Buddha, that who are able to become awakened and enlightened, they became arhats. And so they were hearing the Buddha's teachings, and they were instructed by the Buddha and became enlightened beings themselves. And there's different levels inside Theravada of what that arhatship means. So you can be like a stream enterer, for example, like kind of like the beginning stage. But, you know, that full arhatship is going to be in Theravada no different than the Buddha insofar as when you realize nirvana and you realize parinirvana, no more in this cycle of rebirth, you are no longer going to continue in any type of like physical form of the five aggregates. So in Theravada, it's very specific in that way that your enlightenment, your awakening, your nirvana is no different than the Buddha. And I'll talk more about that difference inside Mahayana in another episode, but that's going to be one remarkable difference. Another one is, so this, as I said, is the path of the hearers, or arhatship path, right? So there's no bodhisattva path inside Theravada, like what we would find inside Mahayana, which is the key mark portion of Mahayana. Now, the reason is, doesn't say there's no bodhisattvas inside Theravada. What they're saying is that if you are going to be on a bodhisattva path, like the Buddha was, Shakyamuni Buddha or Gautama Buddha. If you're going to be on that path, you have had to take a vow before a living Buddha and be identified as a future Buddha that way. And so that's what we look at with Gautama Buddha. He had that vow that in front of a, a living Buddha, and the living Buddha said, you're going to be a Buddha in the future. So he went through a long path as bodhisattvas in numerous lives, numerous existences, right? And so that's a key difference. So remarkable people can become bodhisattvas. Those you know who are taking that vow and identified by a living Buddha to be a future Buddha, those are going to be those on the bodhisattva path, which is very specific. Everybody else is going to be on this path of the hearers. So your goal is to become an arhat. So when we're looking at what Theravada is, that 
is it in a nutshell. It is this path of the hearers to become an arhat. For laypersons, there is a path there as well. And you're going to see this uh, to different degrees in different countries and different cultures where you see, for example, I'm going to give Thailand as an example. You see where a lot of young people and a lot of people of all ages go on these temporary ordinations. So they're going to become monastics for a short amount of time. I always kind of compare it to almost like going to school, if you will, or going off to the military. You're doing a commitment for a certain amount of time to become a monastic, and then you go back to your regular life. Now, of course, people will stay monastics, but that's very much a very popular practice because when we look inside Theravada, as we would inside all of Mahayana and the rest of Buddhism, we're looking at what the Buddha taught and the ability to practice Buddhism as a rare opportunity in this human form. So the ability, especially inside Theravada, is to become an arhat, and to do that, it is... I don't want to say impossible, but it's a rarity, if anything, to become a lay person and become an arhat. Because an arhat, you're giving up that householder life of being married or, or working in a retail store or something like that. It is a totally different path than a lay person. So it's a little bit different that you might find inside Mahayana. So as part of that, what you're doing as a lay person is trying to generate good merits. You're trying to do meritorious actions and and, and one way to do that is through becoming a monastic, getting in that lifestyle. So just like inside the rest of Buddhism, there's, you know, observance days, right? So you have that inside Theravada, but the ability to become a monastic temporarily is looked at as a way to kind of get yourself all in if you can, even if it's for a short amount of time, to generate these good merits so that for future rebirths, you might be able to become a full-time monastic and get yourself further on that path towards arhatship. That is the goal there. So becoming a monastic is a big deal inside Theravada and not to become a temporary monastic, but a full-time. You're trying to get to that path, but we realize we're all on different levels. And so that temporary portion is important. So is the observance days and everything else related inside Buddhism, regardless of the tradition. So in Theravada, laypersons do have a role, very much uh, helping out the monastics, as you would find throughout the rest of Buddhism, but very much integral part of that. You're going to see where the monastics inside Theravada still follow, to a large degree, those daily alms rounds, if they can, and wherever they live. So, of course, throughout the world, that may not always be 100% possible all the time, but in these large Buddhist countries, you can. So, this is a very meritorious activity. So, laypersons can give food to the monastics, and in turn, the monastics can accept it. They're interacting with the laity. They can perhaps maybe give a small teaching, or just even being there for the ability for the layperson to give. Giving is a big thing inside Buddhism. That is helping that layperson as well. So this symbiotic, if you will, relationship with laypersons to help them and laypersons to help the monastics is very much intertwined inside Theravada. Now, if this is a tradition of Buddhism that you'd like to follow, where do you begin? So as you maybe look at different temples out there or different traditions, are they kind of all different types of schools like Mahayana? Not really. So inside Theravada, that is the only school 
inside that branch. Now, you may have different traditions. For example, in these Theravada dominant countries, you might have where there could be several different traditions. And they may practice Theravada in different ways. And they're all still having the same scriptural canon, the Pali canon. They are all having the same rules for monastics, the same analysis of the teaching. So you still got that right there. It's just in how they practice it. Some could be culturally, some could be uh, certain deviations. For example, monastics in one country may interpret and follow the rules for monastics in a in a different way than another country. So it's not saying one is right or wrong. It's just they can interpret and practice how they want to practice. But there's only one school. But there may be different traditions or at a more larger scale, country-specific ways that they practice Theravada. But it is just one school, if you will, one branch and one school. Do you have any questions on Theravada Buddhism? I'd like to hear from you. You can send me a message from my website, alanpito.com, or from my social media. And I look forward to talking with you in our next episode. Thank you.